Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12 this morning. Exodus chapter 12. The last time that Moses had talked to the elders of Israel, he showed them the signs that God had given them. That was before the plagues had started. And and they believed him. They believed that what Moses said was true. They believed that God was going to deliver them. And so did the rest of the people of Israel. That was in chapter 4. But then, in chapter 5, Moses stands before Pharaoh. And he says, God has said to you, let his people go. And Pharaoh's response was, in verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And as a result, he made the workload of the Israelites more difficult. And do you remember how Israel responded? First, they appealed to Pharaoh. They went in, their foreman went in, talked to Pharaoh and said, how could you possibly ask us to do this amount of work and you've taken one of the, the things that we need in order to make the bricks? And then when they left Pharaoh's presence, they met with Moses and Aaron and they said to them, you idiots, you made us detestable in Pharaoh's sight. And we hope that God judges you for it. That was in chapter 5, verse 21. That was my paraphrase. But a lot has happened since Moses has talked to the people of Israel. A lot has happened in between that time when they first believed and then they, then they, then they rejected Him. And now, chapter 12 here, just before the last plague. Jesus said in Luke 7, verse 35, that wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Wisdom is justified by her children. The point of that proverb is that sometimes wisdom looks foolish at the initial time that it's spoken. But the children of wisdom or the fruit of wisdom will show wisdom to be true. And so you just have to wait. And for Moses, it looked like he was a fool. What was he doing? Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. And and over time, it became clear that what Moses was saying was right. That this was from God. These plagues started out as an annoyance for Egypt, but they intensify. They become more and more serious. And now, Moses will speak to the people of Israel again, likely through the elders. And this time, they will listen. And they will respond with favor. It is true that once again Israel will be called to express faith in God and His plan, but the difference this time is that when they're called to put their faith in God, they now have some recent history to bring to their mind. God has shown us His great power in these nine plagues on Egypt. Over this last month in which these nine plagues have occurred, God has shown His power. And will He not do it again? See, now they have thought, they've considered what God has done, and they've seen what God has done, and now they're going to respond with expressing faith. Let me read our passage for us this morning. Exodus chapter 12, and the first 28 verses. This is the Word of God. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, 
they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. And they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it until morning. But whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened in all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when He smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. 
Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. God is going to give Israel a way of escape. And He wants that escape from His wrath never to be forgotten. And so He memorializes it for them or He calls them to do that. Verses 1-14, through we have the institution of Passover. The institution of Passover. Now last week we talked about chronology. And I mentioned that Moses talked with Pharaoh about this coming plague, this tenth plague of death. And he did that at the conclusion of the plague of darkness. While he was still in Pharaoh's presence, Pharaoh said, get out from my presence. I don't want to ever see you again. In fact, if I see you again, you're going to die. And Moses says, you're right. I never will see you again. Let me tell you what's going to happen next. And he goes right into chapter 11, the explanation of the next plague, which is the plague of death. Your firstborn, each of your firstborn, you all the way down to your slave who has a firstborn son will die. And so likely, the people of Israel are getting this instruction during that time of darkness. When there's this plague of darkness for three days in the land of Egypt, in Israel there was light in their homes. And so likely this is when they received the word from Moses through the, through the, um, the leaders. And Moses is going to give instructions for being rescued from this plague and explain to the people what's going to happen next. Now in this plague, we learn uh, that this actually is the beginning of this new rite or ceremony, this memorial called Passover. In verse 2, it says, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. Okay? God was saying, listen, I'm going to start a brand new calendar for you. And your calendar is going to be marked by, the beginning of your calendar is going to be marked by Passover. Now, the Jewish calendar, calendar is very fascinating. It's based on three astronomical events. The first is the rotation of the earth in a 24-hour period. That's a day, similar to ours. The second is the orbit of the moon around the earth. Anyone have any idea how long it takes the moon to orbit around the earth? Yeah, it takes like 29 and a half days to get around the earth. So that would be their month. Every time the moon would go around the earth, that would be one month. And then the orbit of the earth around the sun would be one year. And so they would. this was their calendar. Now the difficulty in it is that... Uh, that because the moon rotates around the earth or revolves around the earth uh, 29 and a half days, you have some months that have 29 and some 30. Now, we do the same, but the difference is they actually would have one month that would have some years that would have 29 days and some years it would have 30. The way that they would determine it is the, the uh, religious leaders, the Jewish, um, the Jewish religious leaders would hear from the people when they first saw the new moon, the first sliver following the new moon, they would come and tell the religious leaders and then they would say, this is the start of the next month. And uh, so so it, it was changing a lot. In fact, if you go onto the Internet and look at Jewish calendars, it's, it's different all the time. I mean, it's, it's not one-for-one one correlation. So if you said May 18th, what is it for the Jewish calendar? It's going to be different every year. Uh, we have something similar to accommodate for an extra day. What is that? Leap, leap day or leap, leap year, right? We have one extra day every four years to accommodate for the 
Earth rotating around the sun 365 and a quarter days. They actually, in addition to that, have to have an extra month every seven or eight years. I think it's every seven years. So instead of 12 months of 30 or 29 days, they have uh, another month where they, where it goes, or another year where it's 13 months. But what God is saying here is, is, listen, this is how you're going to structure your calendar from now on. It's going to be structured around this new moon. This will be the beginning of of uh, your calendar, so that every time they thought about a new year, like when we think about New Year, we think of certain things. For them, they thought of Passover because Passover was coming that month. Fourteen days later, the most significant event in their history was the Exodus, and that was uh, reminded. That was uh, reported to them, or, or they were reminded of it every year when their calendar changed. The requirements for being rescued are found in verses three through eleven. Moses and Aaron are speaking to the elders, but probably the elders are passing it on to the people. And and so he's saying, beginning on the tenth day of the month in verse 3, you need to get the head of the household to slaughter, or to actually at this time, you need to get a lamb, a one-year-old lamb, and take care of it for the next four days. So on the tenth day of the month, they're supposed to get the lamb and determine how many people this lamb would feed. If it's just enough to feed your whole family, then fine, that's enough. But if you have extras or if, or if someone doesn't have enough, then join together with a nearby neighbor, nearby household, and you, you can do it together. The point was that there was not supposed to be any gorging or any leftovers. Uh, the, later on, we're going to see that, that any of the leftovers that they had from this lamb were supposed to be burned up. And so they would, they would have this feast together on the 14th day. They would, in verse 6, slaughter at twilight this lamb... Twilight was between two evenings, between dusk and darkness. And the slaughtering involved skinning, moving the innards, and then tying it up on a spit. And, and the point was to, to do it in the quickest way possible. God's going to tell them, don't boil it. Don't uh, roast it. That's not what we're doing. Uh, or, or you are to roast it. You're not supposed to boil it or cook it in any other way. Um, but you're supposed to eat it with with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, verses 8 and 9. We don't know why they ate this food with bitter herbs, but if you know of Jews who still celebrate this holiday or this memorial today, they still use the bitter herbs uh, as they're, they're reminding themselves about this Passover. But it could be that these bitter herbs pointed to the fact that they were under this great oppression for years, for centuries, from Egypt. Verse 9, it tells us that it must be roasted and not raw or boiled. And again, this is the, the idea of this is that it needs to be prepared in the quickest way possible. Just put it on a spit and roast it and then eat it. We'll see why it's important that they did these things in haste. Verse 10, that they were, they were supposed to burn the leftovers. And the point of all this, look at verse 11. The point of all this is that it should be eaten in a hurry. Now you shall eat it in this manner, manner with your, girds, your, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So here are the requirements for the Passover. Eat this meat in haste. Eat it with unleavened bread, which also would be something they would make in haste. And eat it 
with your coat on, with your keys in your pocket, ready to go. That's the idea. So that, that you can recognize this is something that's going to be done in haste. Now, for this first one, it's important because they're going to leave soon after this, after this death comes upon the land of Egypt, they're going to leave. But even as they memorialize this, as God causes them to memorialize this, He wants them to recognize that it was done in haste. The promise is found in verse 12. I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. God's promise is that He personally will go through the land and, and bring about judgment on the Egyptians. And notice, the purpose of this is so that He can execute judgments on their gods. Now, this is interesting because how do you execute judgments on false gods? If you think about it, false gods don't really exist, right? They are nothings. They are imaginary deities that supposedly do things for these people. They supposedly work on behalf of their servants. So how can God judge imaginary deities? God's judgment on false gods is really judgment on the belief in false gods. He's effectively saying, don't pay attention to them. You think that that, that they are causing all this to happen. And really, they're just like the wizard behind the curtain. They are nothing. They can't save you. Don't pay attention to them. Pay attention to Me. I am the one who is powerfully acting. I am the one who is demonstrating My great authority over what they supposedly control. Right? They supposedly control the rivers. They supposedly control the fertility, the animals, the light, the sun. But they don't. I am the one who does. And so look to Me. Trust in Me. Don't put your confidence in the false gods. So when God says there in verse 12, I will execute judgment on their false gods, I think what He's saying is, I will execute judgment on the belief in false gods. That that they will be shown to be nothings. God has followed through on His promise for Israel that He will bring Pharaoh and his servants to their knees by slaughtering their firstborn. And so their job was to trust God alone. And our job is the same, to trust God alone. He is the only one that is worthy of our trust, of our full confidence, our full hope. And when we do, everything important will follow. Now, why was it so important for them to to have this initiation of this memorial of Passover? Why was it so important? The meaning is found in verses 13 and 14. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I, God says, see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Israel needed to recognize that the rescue that they were experiencing was part of a larger picture that God was painting. And that is that this slaughter of the animal we now know is a symbol of something greater. And it was the deliverance that comes through Christ. The deliverance that Christ brought with His blood for all mankind. And just as the blood of these animals would provide for them a seal of protection 
from the destroyer, so the blood of Christ provides a seal of protection from the eternal wrath of God. Now, we need to keep in mind that just like there was nothing magical about the blood of these animals, neither is there nothing magical neither is there anything magical about the blood of Jesus. His blood was real human blood with the same texture, texture and quality as ours. What makes his blood special is not how it, its constitution, how it's made up. What makes it special is what it symbolizes, right? The symbol of what he gave for us. The symbol of saving faith. That those who put their trust in Christ will be will receive the benefits that his blood provides. Payment for sin and the perfect life that Jesus offered. And so God wants them to memorialize us, and it's good that he did because it helps us to picture what God did in in saving us and rescuing us from His wrath. So in Israel's history, this day would become important because it was not just for this generation. Verse 14 says that it needs to to go throughout all generations. You just celebrate this as a permanent ordinance. What happens when people who experience this event die? Does the next generation remember the event? Certainly they don't remember it, but do they think about it as much? So the importance of this day is that it's memorialized so that people for future generations will think back, why do we do these things? We're going to see that with the children asking the question. And we do the same thing when we set up memorial holidays as well, don't we? Like Pearl Harbor Day or D-Day. So that the people who weren't there to experience those kinds of things can think back, why were, why are we celebrating a day like this? What is it that happened on this day? Or why are we remembering a day like this? And so Israel has a way to make a perpetual reminder for the people of Israel of what God had done. The greatest act in their history, the exodus from Egypt. In addition to this Passover that was going to be on the 14th day of the month, from the 14th to the 21st, they were also supposed to, to, uh, to remember this Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were supposed to have this memorial of unleavened bread. This was a seven-day feast that reminded Israel of its quick departure. And the requirements are shown for us in verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So from the 14th to the 21st. But on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. And whoever does it will be cut off. And whoever eats leavened bread will be cut off. So first, they were supposed to remove the leaven from their houses. Before the 14th day, they were supposed to remove it from their house. And anyone who did not do that, or anyone who ate it, would be cut off from Israel. Now, at the very least, being cut off means being removed from the blessings of the promises that come to Abraham. But at the most, and probably more likely, it refers to God cutting them off by bringing about premature death. That is, divine judgment. So why would God go to such drastic measures to get them to remove leaven from their house or yeast from their house? Is there something inherently wrong about yeast? And certainly, if, if you had a bagel this morning, you recognize there's nothing inherently wrong with, with yeast, right? Right? 
It's the difference between eating a dinner roll or a saltine cracker, right? Yeast is great. It's good for us. It tastes good. It's more filling. Uh, but the point of eating unleavened bread was not that it was that the leaven or the yeast was sinful, although yeast in the Bible is often referred to in that way. In fact, if you think about it, Israel is allowed to have yeast the rest of the year. It's just these seven days, these eight days really, that they're not supposed to eat it from the 14th to the 21st. And so the point is that this leaven, removing it from their house, helped to remind them not just this group here that's going through it, but also future generations, that they did this in a hurry. That we had to make this bread in a hurry. We didn't have time for the dough to rise. So we'll just take out all the yeast, God's telling them, take it all out and just eat unleavened bread. Much quicker. In verses 16 and 18, he talks about having a holy assembly that they're supposed to have a gathering of Jews on the first and the seventh day of this feast. That is the the 15th and the 21st, and that they're to abstain from needless work in verse 16. Notice verse 17. You shall also observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. So just like Passover, verse 14, throughout your generations, a permanent ordinance, so with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Throughout your generations, a permanent ordinance ordinance so that the people of Israel would have it drilled into their minds the importance of God coming to them and rescuing them. In verses 21 through 28, we have some more details, more specifics, and a lot of this is repetition and it's just to show the importance of actually um, carrying out these instructions. But it also gives us some more about the meaning of, of it. The two new items in this section... Verse 22 shows us that uh, shows the people how they are to apply the blood. Before it was to put the door, the blood on the doorpost. Here now they're supposed to use hyssop, which was some kind of a shrub that was kind of a bristly and could be used like a paintbrush. They would dip it in the blood and then put it on the doorpost and on the lintels of the door. And then the second new item that wasn't already explained is that no one could leave the house until morning. That they were supposed to stay in the house, apparently because death was going to be all around. God was going to be bringing about death to the people of Egypt. They were not supposed to go out and see what was going on. They were supposed to stay in the house, be ready to go once it was time. Verse 23, we're reminded again that God is bringing about this death personally. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. This is Similar to what was said in verse 12, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn. God is the one who brings about the death. And this shows us that God is a personal God. That He is near. He's not far away and removed and aloof and uncaring. He doesn't just carelessly wave His wand over the people of Egypt and say, well, let's just see what happens. He doesn't just take a quick glance at the doors of Israel, he says, I personally will go to your door and I will see if you have the blood on it. And if you do, I'm going to pass by it. I'm not going to allow the destroyer to come in. When I go to the doors of the Egyptians, obviously, I will go in and bring about that death. God does it one by one. And this should be a reminder to them of His personal 
care for them, His personal concern for each individual. Verses 24 through 27, we have another reminder about this being a perpetual ordinance. The great value in this is that the people would understand and be ready for the Messiah when He would be sacrificed as a substitution for their death. And then when the instructions for their rescue from death were given, notice what they do. Look at the end of verse 27. And the people bowed low and worshipped. They recognized the great work that God was doing on their behalf. And they could do nothing else but to bow low and worship. And then in verse 28, we see the other response that they have, which is obedience. They did all the things that Moses and Aaron said to do. They saw God's Word being true and the hope that they had, the only hope, was to to, uh, follow the instructions that God had given. And that's what they do. So, there are four main things that we learn from this passage about God. Four main things that we learn about God. Number one, God has a plan. God has a plan. God's multifaceted purposes are seen in the execution of these plagues. God has a plan to free Israel from Egypt's grip so that Israel can worship Him. God has a plan. And God also has a plan that that He will judge Egypt through these plagues. This is one of the ways that God is showing that He is God and that He is judging them for their sin. God's plan also shows us that He is more powerful than Egypt and its gods. God knows exactly what He's doing. And while Israel is going through this whole time period of oppression, this 400 years of being away from their land and under the oppression of Egypt because this new Pharaoh rose up who did not know Joseph, they need to recognize, and now they start to see more clearly than ever, that God has a plan. That God knows exactly what He's doing and that He's going to bring about deliverance for Israel and judgment to Egypt. second thing that we learn about God is that God, is, uh, God has a purpose. God has a purpose very closely related to what we just talked about. God wants to show that He is making a distinction between Israel and Egypt. That's what He said in chapter 11, verse 7. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark. Speaking of the plague that's going to be coming, this final plague, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God has a purpose to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. He wants to show Israel and Egypt that He alone is God. And He wants to bring them to a place where they can properly worship Him. And that's what the story of Exodus, that's what the book of Exodus is all about. Chapters 1-18, through the exodus of Israel from Egypt's control. Chapters 19-40, through they are supposed to go worship Him. God says, let My people go so that they may worship Me. That's exactly how the book is laid out. God causes them to go, chapters 1-18, through and, and so that they will worship Him. And that's, that's what they do. And here, in chapter 12, we see one way that God brings about perpetual worship for Himself. And that is by highlighting these significant events, by memorializing these days. Helping them to remember what God had done for them. And so that leads to our third thing that we learn. That is that God establishes a memorial. Turn back to chapter 10. God establishes a memorial. 
Not only does God want the current generation of Israel to know that He is God, but He wants all successive generations to know as well. Chapter 10, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Not only does God want the current generation to know how great He is and how He made a mockery of the Egyptians, but He wants successive generations to know as well. And so what He does here in chapter 12 is He establishes a Jewish memorial. He establishes a Jewish memorial day, Passover, and a Jewish memorial week that follows Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now you might think that a memorial like this could turn into something that is useless and repetitious and even ritualistic. And I think that can be the case if not properly uh, thought about. But I hope you recognize that there is nothing inherently wrong with ritual. There's nothing inherently wrong with ritual. In fact, it is your ritual to come to the services here each Sunday. And it is your ritual to sit in the same seats that you always sit in. And it is your ritual to pray and sing and read God's Word together. Those are all rituals. But what makes rituals sinful is when they're done heartlessly. And so what God does here is He memorializes this special event for the sake of repetition and reflection so that future generations will look back. Look again at chapter 12, verse 26. When your children say to you, what does this rite, what does this memorial, this ritual mean to you? Then you shall tell them. It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord. So let me suggest to you that properly considered ritual is a way to remind us of the value of the Gospel and so that future generations won't forget it. Another ritual that we have at our church and, and obviously ritual has a negative connotation, so we don't usually call it this, but another memorial that we have is the Lord's Supper. Right? Paul wrote that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That is, It is a perpetual ordinance that has been established by Christ for the church that causes us to stop and reflect. There's nothing magical about eating that wafer or drinking that juice simply causes us to reflect on something that, that those items, those elements represent. They symbolize. And so I would suggest to you that memorials, uh, when properly considered, rituals when properly considered, are good. Then number four, fourth thing that we learned from this passage is that God is worthy of our trust. The faith required by Israel to do this act is significant. They are essentially leaving everything that they have ever known. I mean, if you think about it, these people were born in Egypt. They were raised there. Their parents were born and raised there. It has been 430 years since Joseph has come over. 430 years. That's longer than our nation's history. Now, obviously, we are not under the same oppression 
that Israel was in Egypt. And we don't have a promised land that we need to go to. So it's not the same thing. But what would it be like if you had to take up your roots from here and go somewhere else? See, these people would have likely had trees that their grandparents had planted in their yards. They would have had buildings that had been built by their family. Now they're leaving them. And so Israel's act of faith is significant. They're leaving everything that they have known to go after what God has promised for them. So what act of service is God demanding of you today? God is worthy of our trust. Will you trust Him? Because He knows exactly what He's doing. He has a plan, a purpose for you. And that... And can you trust Him that He will use that act of service to help magnify His name? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the reminders that we have as a church that we uh, that we often uh, express, exhibit, and um, take part in. And we're thankful how they do remind us of of the death of Christ. The two that we have in our church are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Lord, we count these times as very significant and we count it as another opportunity to be reminded about the death of Christ. Certainly, it should be at the front of our minds, but like with Israel and the future generations, it is easy for us to forget. Even though we have experienced great acts of mercy and great acts of Your power, we can quickly turn from You when circumstances change, when difficulties arise. So we're thankful for memorials like this and for uh, for uh, reminders that we have even in each service as we sing to You and as we read the Scriptures and as we give, that these things ought to be reminders of us, of, of what You have done for us and what we owe to You. Lord, we pray that He would help us to trust You like Israel trusted You at this time. They had seen Your acts of power, Your acts of mercy, and they responded with faith and obedience. They bowed in worship and then obeyed. Lord, help us to do the same. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.